Hello, Van Ronan. How are you, sir? I'm fine. I don't have to call me sir. I'm not that old. Oh. <laughs> My special guest today is a superb actor who's been enhancing the stage and screen for more than five decades. He played four different roles in the bill, most notably, of course, as Sierra Oscar 5-2. Since then, he's played everything from a flying instructor to a model shop owner, even an archbishop. He's governed the bad girls and won critical acclaim for his leer. In this house, there's only one Corrie I watch, and it's the one with the three stripes. Ladies and gents worldwide, make some noise of a mighty Roland Oliver. Run and welcome to the Bill Gosh, you wouldn't like to be my PR person. Yeah, sure. The best I've ever had. I wrote about three years ago a little piece of sort of doggerel verse, imagining somebody like you, if you like, looking at my CV and my career and responded a good in progress. So it might be an idea. If I read that to you. Yes, please. I'd love that. Okay. Yeah, well, I, you know, I've got no one to blame but myself if it does go well. Uh, now, let me see. Middle class, Oxford educated, able-bodied, heterosexual white male. Clearly programmed not to fail. <laughs> even without public school or sounding posh. Should have spent a lifetime raking in the dog. <laughs> And grandparents from London's East End must have put you right on trend. Oh, went into the performing arts, silly choice. Especially with a tone-deaf ear and a tuneless voice. Didn't Peter Cook give you a nudge? You got the Latin, you could end up a judge. You weren't going to be a tall, handsome, leading man. Have you ever had a single female fan? <laughs> Even so, you made a reasonable start. Within two years, a major West End part, then regional theatre, working with stars, TV roles, constantly setting artistic goals. Later, an acting goal in New York City. But no American career, what a pity. You've never worked at the National or the RSC. Unlike your peers, no knighthood or even OBE. Barely scraped a living, if the truth be known. But no one wants to hear you act as a moan. For security or success, choose a different route. If you think you failed, who gives a hoot? You played bottom, Polonius and King Lear. Provoked gales of laughter and many a tear. Supremely watchable, outstandingly intelligent, a masterclass. You could probably call that an honourable pass. Still available for work, I hear you say. Gosh, at your age, haven't you had your day? Well, well, if you're doing anything, let me know the where and when. I'll come and watch. What was your name again? <laughs> that is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> I love that. People always say, you know, I've got an English degree and I'm fairly articulate and I do theatre. Why don't you write plays? And I, I don't know. Except that I always used to say, I know enough not to write a bad one, and I've got enough talent to write a good one. <laughs> but this, I started going in the local library to a, a, a writing class with a very good teacher. He wasn't, he wasn't 
particularly interested. Well, we did sometimes do verse forms, but he was give us things to stimulate. I can't remember what brought that about, but uh, but then with COVID, he started doing it on Zoom at the time. I think idleness is probably <laughs> the main reason. But you must you have to buckle down here when you're writing something. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's uh, especially if you when it's mixed with research, you can just. Yes. You can spend a whole day looking at one thing. I mean, I can get lost looking for a street used in the bill. How was the, you know, lockdown for you, you know, the last couple of years? Truthfully, the same as everybody else, really. I mean, did little. Fortunately, I seem to get on quite well with my wife because we spent <laughs> a lot of time in each other's company with limited social access. I mean, you, you wave to the name. It's much better now, of course. And we did manage to... In intervals in the lockdown, get to France, see our son and family. Even at Christmas, when this is partly amusing, nothing to do with the bell, but we went, they live in near Mont Blanc. And we always fly to Geneva and then go by road into France, from Switzerland, of course. And uh, they changed the rules and we had to move our flights and move back and forth. And they changed this from midnight on Saturday, you can't come, basically, from British. Midnight on Saturday, we discovered meant zero hours on Saturday, not 23.59. So even if we moved to Saturday, they went to move to Sunday. We finally went to France and Switzerland with every conceivable document on phone and on paper. We got into Geneva all right. Then we went by road into France. And not only were we not stopped, there was no one on duty to stop us. As we went into France, I mean, it's a border post, but... You could imagine the guys, the bosses saying, we stop the foreigners coming in and the guys who do the actual job say, you think I'm working at 10.30? Yeah. <laughs> a couple of Englishmen coming in. You're a prolific stage actor. I mean, this, is this the most challenging time for the theatre that you've known in your lifetime coming out of COVID? Yes, it is the most. I mean, but it is it is going on, but... Uh, I mean, I haven't done a theatre job for five years, I think, something like that. But mind you, that's a consequence of what happens, you find, is that, uh, as they say, old actors never die, they just get smaller parts. <laughs> you know, someone like me is competing with actors of my age who are better known than I am. But also, there's certain jobs I, I do I want to do a six-month tour of the regions, yeah. finding my own digs. Not that I've been offered it, but... Um, and also the company I work with in Bristol a lot, the Shakespeare, the Tobacco Factory, is now more or less defunct for all sorts of understandable reasons, but disappointingly so. Are you a nostalgic person? Do you, do you like looking back? or? or... Well, funnily enough, yes, again, I think it's a consequence of coming towards Act 5, as it were. Of my, I think about my father a lot. My granddad was a policeman in the Met. Wow. wow. Yeah, he never liked it. He, he he did work in the London docks when he was first married, but when he became a father, my father was his uh, first child. He had a daughter much later. I think he thought, I must get a steady job. So he joined the Met and in the Camberwell district. And then he got called up in the First World War because he'd had experience as a boilermaker. He then uh, was sent off to... Salonica, Thessaloniki, said, I was away from home for three years, but then back in the police. And, about, and he was a local Bobby, Bobby on the beat. Everybody knew Mr. Oliver, uh, a big man. And 
he was always in trouble for not making enough arrests. Apparently, I mean, I obviously before my time, I didn't know him, but this before my time, if he found him drunk on the street, he'd know who the guy was, and if he wasn't violent, he'd take him home rather than running him in. And I don't know if it was sort of minor corruption, but he would bring chickens home from, I mean, dead chickens over from the local market, which would be a little sweetener from, uh, I, I don't know whether he'd done, kind of turned a blind eye to illicit, or whether he'd protected them from theft, I don't know. And he once got this is this is antiquated about the thing with the police, not the modern thing with the police, but in his day, no policeman was allowed to go into somebody's house without being invited or having a warrant, and they did not interfere in domestic disputes as they called them. But my grandfather went in because he knew that this either the neighbours called him that this man would assault and maybe severely damage, even kill his wife. So my grandfather went in, as I say, a big man. The guy attacked him with a bottle. He warded it off, thumped him. That sorted that out. I don't know what happened to the guy. But my grandfather was fined a day's pay for going in. And also he damaged minor but permanent damage to his left wrist. So he wasn't very pleased about that. Was the police ever, uh, or any other career, something you ever considered or was it just that no my my my, gran my grandfather was a policeman my father was a teacher my mother was a nurse all those sort of public service jobs never appeared. i did do a bit of supply teaching uh, i never trained as a teacher but i had um i had a degree so i could do it and, uh, and that was useful as a filling job for an out-of-work actor because it was usually on a daily basis but I was absolutely determined not to be a teacher, and certainly a policeman wouldn't even cross my mind. And uh, I think I'd be too much of a coward to be a policeman. Oh, well, I'd, I'd agree with you there. Yeah. Uh, well, do you remember when you discovered the acting bug, or did anything? Was there a trigger? Is that that's a question people often ask me, and I don't know. I mean, I've always done stuff. Even at primary school, I was the you know the, the loud mouth who played the I don't know I played Father Christmas when I was six or seven in some school. And as soon as I went to grammar school, I went to Beckenham Grammar School. I joined the Dramatic Society. Nobody else in the first year did. All the others were you know I put my name up. Instead, I'm still wearing short trousers. With kids of my generation, I'd go to the play readings in my shorts with sandwiches that my mum gave me. Friday evening, uh, and then I was in a couple of plays in school, and the father of one of my friends was a lunary and local Andram, and they needed a a thirteen year old, a fourteen year old, to be in a play, and I did a play with them, and then another one, and then when I was sixteen, I actually played the juvenile romantic lead in in a play where I had several unsuitable girlfriends, and then ended up with a nice girl. And at the end of the play, this nice girl, I was 16, she was 22, married, and as I subsequently discovered, pregnant, but only just. And she was, I mean, I'm not tall, but she's shorter than me. And we'd not kissed in the rehearsal. We just sort of said, they kiss. Came to the technical rehearsal, and she had her arms around my neck, and she said to the director, shall I kiss him? And he said, well, yeah, well, um, yeah. I mean, that's what it says. So she kissed me. Then she, with her arm still round my head, turned to the director and said, 
Shall I kiss him again? <laughs> I think up to that was probably the best moment of my life. Yeah. <laughs> that far. Alas. And I thought, this is the life for me. This is what. And then in the dressing room afterwards, all the other girls who I rejected in the play all queued up for a kiss as well. Oh, wow. And, and, and we changed the same sort of big room. It was all perfectly respectable. They're wandering around in their underwear. You know, yeah. was, well, you could imagine. So, yes. But I, I, as far as I know, it wasn't until I was 50 that I got kissed on stage again. And then uh, it was an old mate. I mean, a female old mate, very attractive woman. Yeah. And she's still a friend. Oh. Um, so I don't know whether it was teenage sexual fantasies. That yeah. really, but but going back, trying to be more serious, I don't know. I mean, my dad was a little, he wasn't theatrical at all, but he was a, you sometimes, as a teacher, I suppose, you sometimes feel that he was performing a bit. But not really. And, and my parents were not, yeah, you know, we went to the theatre occasionally, the pantomime, things like that. But my father, I mean, he thought the cinema was an unhealthy place, so we didn't go there. Not in any moral sense, but people smoked and it was dark and you should be out in the fresh air playing football. In my adult lifetime, I think it's all three, four films. We went to see Richard III with Lawrence Olivier, because that was part of my education. We saw... Uh, east of Eden, for reasons that I were born with a by accident, we saw Gold, a 1966 World Cup film, and then uh, he saw Sound and Music. I guess I think that's that's all right. I mean, what films on television, but that's all I know he actually went to. It's true. Yeah, so my nan and granddad only went to the cinema once, and it was to watch Goldfinger. <laughs> really? Yeah. I've come just still in the generation before television. We... A lot of people got the television for the coronation, the Queen's coronation. We actually got a bit before that because it was the Stanley Matthews Cup final, if you know what I'm talking about. Oh, okay. Uh, so I had the television. And in fact, for the for a few years, we were ahead of the game in our street and about a dozen people would come and watch the Cup final in our house. But people, my parents were different, but my friend down the road, his mum would go to the cinema, often with him if it was cinema, at least twice a week, because we had one cinema a mile in one direction, one and a half a mile in the other direction. So there were at least two possibilities. And of course, they always used to show two films, they? the B feature and then the main one. Yeah, so you ask if I'm nostalgic, it looks like it. Just... Yeah, this is wonderful. It's fantastic. Were your parents supportive of you when you decided you wanted to pursue an acting career? They were, but my... It's a very difficult job, as you know. I mean, if I look back at my proper CV, I mean, I seem to do a lot early on, not television, but theatre. But you don't earn very much. And then there will be longers and hiatuses. And um, my mother said, well, you've done your best. This was after I'd been at it for a while, not when I started. She, she said, you're not ruining your life, but damaging your life, pursuing a dream. Wow. And for me, it wasn't a dream. I thought, well, this is what... What I want to do, what I think I'm quite good at, but initially I wanted to be a director, because that's what people from Oxbridge do, don't they? They become directors, but it didn't work out that way. So <laughs> I do it, I did direct, I'm not most actors, I directed, I've directed plays in the theatre occasionally. But, uh, so they were not unsupportive. Because my dad was in education, I mean, he was a totally different sort of, he was a woodwork metalwork. 
teacher in a, in a city school in the last 20 years of his career at Keddington Boys School. But education was kind, and I did do well at school. And it was a sort of, I went to Oxford because I got in. Yeah, yeah. In, yeah. you know, and people don't. And I did, so yeah. been downhill ever since. But no, no. <laughs> I still had the letter somewhere off me. Um, oh, I mean, my contemporaries—the obvious ones worth mentioning: are Terry Jones and Michael Palin. Uh, and Terry was in the same college you read, and Michael Palin is a different college, but an exact contemporary. Uh, last year on the Edinburgh Fringe, he directed the Late Night Review, and I directed the play. Uh, and our career seems to be slightly different. Yeah. Well. <laughs> He's a very nice man, by the way. I, I, mean, I can't call him. We're perfectly friendly if we meet, which we do. Yeah, yeah. He's not a current mate. But Terry was a lovely guy as well. Oxford's a beautiful city, isn't it? Beautiful city, yeah. Did you go to university? Yeah, I went in York. I, I... Oh, well, that's not bad. No, it was it was a very nice city. Well, it was during university, but I really got into Inspector Morse, which you obviously been in, and <laughs> and I went on a a Morse pub crawl where you could actually look up a little map of all the pubs featured in the series. Really, have a pint in each one, and yeah. it was a it was a brilliant little weekend. The the, the it's worth mentioning because the last episode of Inspector Morse when he died was written by Stephen Churchill. Do you know who I mean? I do. A, a lovely actor. He wrote one of your bills. Uh, he did. Well, that's how I, he and I were at school together. Oh, and he's, I mean, he's a bit younger than me, or was a bit younger yes, than me, but yeah. to put our paths crossed, we had mutual friends. And he was in the bill I did, the Wait for the Whistle. So he knew what sort of character, and he actually wrote me into, he was asked to write me into an episode. So he was, uh, hadn't our paths crossed? But he did really well as a writer. I look at his yeah. credits. Lewis, he wrote as well. When you were at Oxford, well, what was the process for you to turn become a professional actor? How did you... oh, the process? That's interesting because uh, one we talked about whether one should go to drama school afterwards if you wanted to be an actor. I mean, for instance, well, I remember director saying the actor we now know as Michael York might be a good idea if he went to drama school. We didn't go to drama school, and he had a sort of meteoric start to his career. Annabelle Leventon, if you know who she is, is a contemporary one. She went to drama school afterwards. I tried to get on training courses as a director. So that was the the process. There was a the what was then called Associated Reading Fusion Television Company backed uh, training directorships in theatre and then there were Arts Council bursaries. I remember I was interviewed for an Arts Council bursary. It took months because I had to arrange an interview with each member of the, the panel separately, Whoa. including one person called Elizabeth Sweetie, who ran the Oxford Playhouse, who was almost a mate. Wow. And I still didn't get the bursary. <laughs> she, well, the principal in Bristol Convict and her said they would recommend me, but obviously the others didn't. So, um, oh. yeah. but you know, I mean, maybe I think Let's to be serious, I don't think I've quite, quite admitted that I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to work in theatre, yes, be a director, I'm a producer, you know, that sort of thing. You know, I, until I became a father and thought, and I was pushing 40, this is what I do, for good or ill. And so I would then say, people say, what do you? And I'd just say, I'm an actor, like you might say, I'm 
a lorry or a bricklayer. Before that, as I've already said, it was, well, I, you know, I worked in theatre. Because I did mainly, I didn't do much television until I was about your age. You know, I know exactly. It's only over the last year, and I've I've sort of been firm and said I'm a TV historian. It's what I am. It's what I do. It's what I love doing. But it's a funny sort of. I wonder what that is. Whether it's a sort of uh, a modesty thing or a confidence thing. Both of those, and also there's just slightly embarrassed. Also, you must get this because as soon as you say that. The questions you uh, you must be asked, and I get that. Oh, well, have I seen you in? Or, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, have you done this? And then you think, well, you know, I've done a lot, but, you know, blinking, you miss me. And you must, must have to find yourself explaining yourself all the time. Well, I, it's funny when I meet people, you know, the, the bill to me seems like quite recent in television, but there's a generation for whom it was never on now. And that, when did it finish? 2010. Oh, it's not that long. It's not that long. Yeah, but then like people said, "Oh, is that is that that old cop show?" And you're like, "Oh, no, it wasn't." It seems so. But you see, I mean, the 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 bill equivalent for me was then Charles. Of course, you know, which nitty and gritty and all that. Well, touched it with the Scottish actor Joe Brady, who played one of the cops in in Charles in Scotland. He's a terrific actor. Yeah. And I worked with you know, Sergeant Lynch, Jimmy Ellis. I worked with his ex-wife, did a very good play in the theatre with her. Would Repertory Theatre have still been going strong when you were... Yeah, I mean, we we, we, we enjoyed to call it regional theatre. But my very first job, I, as I mentioned, trying to be a director, I wrote to every rep in the country saying, can I be an assistant or associate? And Lincoln Theatre Royal contacted me. It was then run by Nicholas Bartu. You remember he subsequently became principal of RADA. He was the one before last or something. He was only a company years older than me. And they had two companies at Lincoln that would go to other theatres. And he said, we might need a sort of staff director to mind the shows. And I thought, yes, yes. Then he contacted me. He said, we can't justify it. And the budget, would you like to be an assistant stage manager instead? And I said, okay, I'm not paid £10 a week, ever. Uh, and I was not very good at it because I didn't, I don't say this with any pride, I didn't really, you know, come out of Oxford and directed a program at the Edinburgh Fringe which got a very good review in the Sunday Times. And here was I doing most of what I did could have been done by an intelligent dog, I used to say, except I was an intelligent dog, unfortunately. And I wasn't very good at it. And I should either have buckled down and learned what I could from it or left. But I stayed for six months and moaned. <laughs> She's not very good. Why has she got that? Not that I mean, I did. They got, I had occasional parts, but I was the ASM who wanted to be a director. So yeah, they, yeah. Didn't give me. Some of my colleagues had quite good parts. In the 60s, I worked Lincoln, Worcester, Sunderland wasn't a rep. I did a play there. I think it was Helen Mirren's first job, certainly one of them. Newcastle and Bromley. I did a six and stayed with my parents because those were really. I did six months at Bromley, which they called it, the director called a star season. They'd shifted from weekly to fortnightly to three weekly without some making big thing. And his star season included, do you know who Veronica Lake was? Yeah. Wow. If she'd played Blanche Dubois and Streetcar Named Desire, 
And I played the doctor who carts her off to the loony bin at the end. I've always depended on the kindness of strangers. One evening, she invited me back to her hotel, not in salacious way, but me and her girlfriend I had at the time and said, you would have come back for a nightcap. And she had she had a sort of minder, a young woman who was teaching her her lines. And we had couldn't go because we would promise forth, as it were. She, the I thought having mentioned her, I mean, it was terribly difficult because she was she couldn't remember her lines and so on and so forth. But she'd done it on the theatre. She was now there, and she was de- when she got into it, she was actually desperately moving because her own life is a bit like Blanche Dubois and, and Ty Harding. Do you remember him, cowboy star on television? He was the the Marlon Brando part. Anyway. I could I could talk a lot a great deal about that streetcar, but I think that might be uh, off. Oh no! Piece, it? I oh I love it. I mean, did 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 your parents come and see you? Oh yeah, they came to all the plays. In fact, we did the Ghost Train, which is a by Arnold Ridley of uh, Private Godfrey fame. Yeah, uh, we did that, and the director had a bright idea that we would sell drinks in the intervals at nineteen twenty five prices. So, you know, a pint of beer was nine old pence and things like that. And my parents came to see it with some friends. And one of the friends, because it was difficult to get to the bar with these cheap drinks, he didn't come in for the second act. He stayed in the bar so he could be the first to get the cheap drinks when the second interval came. And it was not, I mean, it was quite a good idea because they only did it on Tuesday and Wednesday. We got good attendances on Tuesday and Wednesday, which you might not have done otherwise. It was a murder to do, because by Act 3, half the audience were pissed, and they were, <laughs> ca- they were carrying um, the beer into the auditorium and spilling it, and we are trying to act. <laughs> and the barman told me that one night, eight young men each ordered eight single whiskeys. And when they first, they couldn't buy doubles, when they first did it, the barman thought that this guy was buying it for his mates. But they, as I say, bought eight each. So the, I mean, it was wow. a marketing idea. It didn't quite work. No. <laughs> that it's intended. But then they did, I wasn't in it, but they did, uh, oh, talking of Priestman, they did The Crucible with Rupert Davis, who was the only made grey. Subsequently, they played by, uh, left by this time, Cliff Richard. And Adam Faith did uh, Billy Lyon. There was another strange. The director took on us as a sort of resident supporting company without knowing what he was going to, what they, actually they were going to do, what plays they were going to do. So, for example, in Streetcar, the Carl Malden part, I wanted to play, but I was only 25, 26. And I couldn't, I couldn't do it because, well, I could have done it if he had been an ordinary. But, you know, they had to hire an actor in his 40s. And so, and the guy who was the so-called leading man in our group, he actually had six weeks off on full pay because they couldn't use him. Wow. He hired a company that would be like a company for a rep season. Leading man, leading lady, uncharacter man, which was me, young character woman, juvenile, female lead, juvenile, the Romeo and Juliet, as it were, of the... And we might be doing plays like that, but there would be a, some star actor or famous actor. Yeah, it was an interesting time, that. Long time ago. Do you think rep could work now? What I do think is a good idea is to work with the same group of actors 
with the Shakespeare Tobacco Factory, we, we, I mean, you would have half of new actors, but there were actors that you worked with. And we did Love's Labour's Lost. Now, you may not be familiar with minor Shakespeare, but there is in Love's Labour's Lost a character called Hollow Furnies, who's a boring, pedantic schoolmaster. Makes 400-year-old jokes, many of them in bad Latin. Funny enough, one of the things I'm proud of, because we made it work. Partly because a hint in the text suggested that he might be a bit of a lecherous old pedant. So whenever the young woman came on, I would almost collapse, gibbering with lust. But what really made it work, one of my colleagues I was used to working with, his name is Jonathan Nibbs, he played the dim curate. So if I'm pontificating in obscure words or in Latin, and he's struggling to understand, then the audience think, oh, yes, it's not me being dim. This guy's a boring old fart. Yeah, yeah. The, the boring old fart becomes funny <laughs> because he's, what the f is he talking about? Yeah. <laughs> I saw a wonderful video with you. Uh, I think it's a Shakespeare's brain video talking. Oh, that, you watched that. Oh, I, I tell you that... I, I'd love if you can tell the story from that Love's Labour's Lost of the audience member on the front row. Oh, would you like to hear? Oh, I'd love to. That's out, that's outrageous. Uh, the the theatre in Brazil is the tobacco factory. As the name suggests, it's a uh, reclaimed industrial space, and the audience are in the round. And sometimes with Shakespeare, you get the classical concerts. People read the score, read the text, and we had this kind of fun round with the text of Love's Labour's Lost. And, of course, you could see him. If it had been a Presidium Arch Theatre, he'd be back in the stores. And he's there reading them. And I said, we could get this guy. And one of my colleagues, and I'll mention his name, it's his story, but I was there. His name is Tom Sherman. He lives in Bristol. And he was playing Costa. I was a sort of rural character. And a bit like a Midsummer Night's Dream, the, uh, the working class do a show for the boss people. And they tell you about the nine worthies, people like Pompey and Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great. And at one point, this guy, Tom, says, um, Pompey the Big, Pompey the Big, I am. And one of them says, no, Pompey the Great. And the next line is, you're right, sir, it is Pompey the Great. On this occasion, he said, Pompey the, I'm Pompey the Big, I am. And the posh bloke says, no, it's Pompey the Great. And he said, well, forward to the audience, took the script out of the guy's hair, looked at it and said, you were right. It's <laughs> Pompey the Great. And then he gave it back to him. To his credit, the man took him very well, but his wife or girlfriend with him was a puce with embarrassment. I mean, she was took it well. He got, and the whole audience just erupted. And that's... You can do something like that, and it wasn't improper behaviour by the actor. It was absolutely... Yeah, it just fell right in that moment. Right in that moment. So that reminds me, I, I did a play once where I had uh, cupboards with drawers on the top that you get in the kitchen, chest and all, and I shut the one cupboard door and the other one opened. Then I shut that one and this one opened. And I did it again, and the same thing happened, and I said, yeah, that's clever. <laughs> <laughs> And the audience fell about. So that is a good idea. I came in the next day. I rehearsed it, made sure it happened again. That night, it did exactly the same thing. Said, hey, that's clever. Not a teacher. Oh. Because it wasn't real. I don't know. Something about it. I don't know why it didn't work. Anyway, you mentioned the Shakespeare and 
the creative brain. Because that was my old college in Oxford, and they have something that I can never say this out loud called Centre for the Creative Brain. And there were a whole lot of lectures, very interesting lectures about what happens to neurologically when you're told a joke. There's something with electronics in your head and so on and so forth. And I was the cabaret, really, you know, rather daunting me, Janet Sutsman, you know, Dame Janet sort of was in the audience who had been in her time, former wife of Trevor Nam. <laughs> and I decided that I wasn't just going to read a bit. I, all these other intellectuals have been going on for hours. I was going to have my turn. So I talked about the, is this a dagger before I've seen, I've seen before me? And I'd already disagreed with her about something she'd said. <laughs> and she came up to me afterwards. She said, very interesting gloss on you gave on that Macbeth speech. Yes. And I thought, yes. The point I was trying to make is not how this is how it should be done. With a classic text, you've got to look at it, try and not get rid of the tradition, but get rid of the things, the accretions. That, yeah. I mean, for instance, Nowhere does it say that Toby Belch is fat and middle-aged. He could be the younger brother of Olivia's mum. And you, you should look at it. I'm not in favour of, you know, I think we better sell Coriolanus in the Third Reich or, or something like that. I don't particularly like auteur directors in poses. But if you look hard and say, not is this what it says, but what do I, do I think this is what it says and if we're not, People asked me about King Lear. What was your interpretation? I said, well, I didn't, I didn't have an interpretation. I looked at each scene and did the classic, and what would I do if I were in, or a, not a king? So, and you add in sufficient circumstances that made you work. So I sort of played the part, dare I say, on its merits. You have to go through the entire gamut from fury to despair. But then, you know, all of us at some time in our lives have touched on those emotions. Do you have a favourite venue that you've performed theatre at? Well, funnily enough, because some of the best parts I've had have been rooms above pubs and things like that, so I do play the old Red Lion in Islington, which was where I first met Andrew Hilton, who subsequently started Shakespeare the Tobacco Factory. He directed it. I do like in, in the Round Theatre. On the whole, I would go for an intimate space rather than a 2,000-seater where you've got to make sure they... And as I can't sing the same with life, I'm never likely to be invited to, to <laughs> musical theatre. And what was it like when you moved the jump into television? Because presumably you were never trained in television. So... No, well, I never trained in anything. I mean, I'd been to classes. What happened... I mean, I'd done a couple of parts. And then a director... Television director called John Black. I knew him in Scotland. I worked a lot in Scotland in the seventies, and he was doing Doctor Who. And I wrote him a letter. I said, "I know we meet in Scotland, but I live in London." And you know, and he gave me a perfectly reasonable part in Doctor Who, Captain of the Guard. According to, uh, I've come to you via a guy who I was in school with called Ken McAleer and his son and all that. And his son told Ken in the Doctor Who fan base. I'm the one who's been knocked unconscious the most times in a single story because I kept being zapped yeah. and my head banged by Tom Baker and then finally killed off with some sort of laser gun. And you know Graham Cole's in there. Well, this is him here. Yeah, he absolutely. 
He's a nice fellow. He was always made for us. Yeah. And, uh, in fact, he's ruined the life of, uh, I mean, not by being a nice fellow, but of uh, many a supporting artists, because that's what he started at. Because he's a big, powerful-looking guy, directors all the same, we don't have him in this scene. Come on, and that progressed to becoming the last. I stood, the only bit I remember from the last one I did when I played the headmaster was walking around the corridor with him. Yeah, that's right. Because it was quite difficult, because there's people coming the other way, and there's doors to open, and you're trying to do it. I think we had to do it several times because I, I crashed into a door or one. Well, the way um, TV was made then, I mean, let's use Doctor Who as an example, presumably you spent a week rehearsing and then Absolutely. did it. Yeah, so. You're quite right. It used to be much more like uh, theatre. You would rehearse. In Doctor Who, we did do it like that, but we the only time we did it in order was at the read-through. But we'd do a couple of weeks rehearsal and a couple of days in the studio. They'd do all the TARDIS scenes in the same session, for instance. And then you'd do two more weeks rehearsal. <laughs> and uh, for the second lot of studio stuff, the electricians went on strike. They had a legitimate grievance. It was to do with, you know, they worked till 10 o'clock at night and they didn't get any parking places at the television centre, whereas day staff, office staff, would get it and leave at five o'clock and the electrician was saying, hang on, we've got, it's not just us, we've got female members having to walk around the back of White City at 10 o'clock at night and it's not right. So it was postponed. So that did mean that they, when they did it again, we got paid again, oh, wow. which is quite nice. So Tom Baker, I thought, was very nice. Not up himself, if you see what I mean. Just very um, interested in other people. Yeah, because... He had a reputation at that time because it was his penultimate story of maybe being a bit aloof. But I think he was happy on that production because it was a very good production, wasn't it? Yeah, it looked good. It was great actors. I think he, I think when he was, when I think when he's an actor's actor, isn't he? I mean, when he's surrounded by people he respects, then I think he's at his happiest. Can I can I tell tell a story about it? Is that allowed? Yes. Well, uh, well, you yeah, do have a run through on a Saturday morning, and uh, and he was late unusual and it meant that we had to run late the rehearsal and, and there was something I don't know a tennis tournament in the afternoon white one cup and someone had tickets for that and you know like, he apologised and he said isn't it very cold in that green park you know he said boy he said well I'd spend the night in green park he used to spend a lot of time in Soho because he was a voiceover artist and he had a pager before so he had a lot of mates in Soho, including the painter Francis Bacon. So they went for a Chinese meal, then they went to Charlie Chester's casino, and then they went and had a few drinks. And he had to go back to South Kensington. Don't know why he didn't get a taxi. He got as far as Green Park, sat on the bench and fell asleep. <laughs> and was there all night. And uh, one of my colleagues was chatting and was going to move to Guildford. And Tom said, I couldn't live in Guildford even if you gave me a he said, why not? He said, well, if I can't get from Soho to Kensington, how would I ever get from Guildford to Kensington? Hello, this is Ben Payton, and you have been listening to The Bill Podcast, produced and presented by Oliver Crocker. Co-produced by Ben Adams, Rob Cook, Sarah Kuiper, Alex Mockler, and Simon Wolfe. Executive produced by Isabel Allen, Ben Ashmore, Joseph Beaver, 
Daniel Christopher, Alana Dewar, Andrew Dyack, Paul Dunn, Dan Evans, George Fairbrother, Luke Hegarty, Edward Kellett, James Ledane, Simon McGoldrick, Lucy McNeil, Gary Moncur, Stuart and Jen Morris, Claire Norbury, Laura Pinifay, Tom Sherrington, Angel Stannard, Patrick Stratford, Michael Weil and Sarah Wendt. Brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com, mcgoldrickwatchrepairs.com and Misty Moon Events. For over 60 hours of exclusive The Bill-related content, including reunion highlights, reaction videos, cast and crew commentaries, Bill Grimmage location videos, off-the-beat bonus podcasts and much more, join the investigation from £2.49 a month at patreon.com forward slash The Bill Podcast. <laughs>